everyone, welcome to Dublin Bible Church. If you're gathering online, welcome. My name is Chad. I'm the pastor. If you're here, you probably know me. If not, my name is Chad. We've officially met. We can get on with the sermon. All right. So, hey, we're in week two of a series called Faded. And just like Karen talked about a couple minutes ago, uh, we're actually talking through the seven churches of Revelation. And this week we're in, uh, it's week two of a series, and we're going to look at the second church. And each church is very significant, and each church, each church rather, is, is very specific in the message that it receives. But what's interesting in this message and that how all these messages come through, that every one of the churches mentioned most likely would have been reading each other's mail. So it wasn't just a letter to this particular church because there's this reference, and I think it's all of the, the messages to the churches that it's to the churches. So uh, just think about... These letters, now they're actually going around to the seven churches in this, this really small area of the world. So this message is for them, but also I believe it's for us because every one of these churches has something that either we need to do better in or we just need to be encouraged because we're already doing it. So what I would like for us to do is open up uh, God's Word and just to begin this morning in Revelation 2, starting in verse 8 through 11, and we're just going to read this, and I'm going to pray, and then get into, into the sermon. So, Revelation 2, verse 8. This is God's Word. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not hurt at all by the second death. This has been God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today and we are desperate to see uh, a work done in our lives. God, we're desperate for revival. We're desperate for the clarity that comes with somebody who walks in the spirit. Lord, we are desperate for the message that you have for us. Even in this ancient writing through the apostle John to the church in Smyrna and the other churches, God, we're desperate for this truth for ourselves. God, because we are people who are, who are fearful and we are people who oftentimes aren't faithful. And Lord, we need the same commendation that this church had so that we can be just the, the beauty uh, of just a beautiful church in our day and we can display you to all people. Amen. Amen. Well, again, the series is called Faded and know that in this, as we just read, that this message is to a church in Smyrna. Now, I, I was trying to think of how could I like begin this talk, and this is sometimes just what I do, and sometimes the, the beginning of a talk just comes right out, and then sometimes it takes a little work, and then sometimes I fall into a YouTube hole. Has anyone ever fell into a YouTube hole? It's like you're like you're watching it, and you're like, that's really neat, and the next thing you know, it's like one thing after the other after the other. Then you look at your watch, and you're like, it's been an hour. Like, it's okay now. Let's come back to what, what the point is. And what I started to do is I started to get in this, in this YouTube hole about things about the White House, 
I've always been fascinated about the White House, always. And I, I've never gone into the White House. By the way, who's gone into the White House? Anyone? Anyone? Cool. I've got a few people. Been into the White House. Did you see every room, every hallway, every closet? No, you didn't. Every tunnel, every secret passageway? Of course you didn't. That brings the allure. This is the reason why I fell into the YouTube trap. Why I was in the hole is because I've just let my mind wander and I just know that there's more there. So eventually I look through all these different things and then I'm watching this this tour from President Obama and the First Lady just watching this 18-minute tour of the White House. I'm like, I just fell into it. One of the reasons why I was even interested in the White House to begin with is because there's more than meets the eye. What it means is that you look at something on the outside and you're like, wow, that's a really big house or that's a beautiful house. And yet anyone who knows much at all about the White House knows there's a lot going on inside the White House and there's a lot of stuff we don't know about, a lot of stuff that we probably don't need to know about. But yet there's more than meets the eye. It's the same thing with the church in Smyrna because what Jesus says, starting in verse 8, is so profound because what Jesus is now speaking through the Apostle John to the church in Smyrna, it may look on the surface like, well, here's just another letter, and he's just encouraging them of some things, and because this church wasn't really doing anything wrong. There's only two churches of the seven who are mentioned who, who don't get a correction. They don't get a correction. They're doing pretty good. So it may be one of those things where we just kind of pass over it and think, oh, that's just an interesting Little fact. I want you to know that Smyrna was a beautiful city in its day, but Christians in Smyrna suffered some, some of the most horrific persecution in its day. So while the city is, is beautiful and people would go there and it was opulent, it was right on the water, it was the only other city that was on the water, Ephesus being the other one, and it was just beautiful and people just wanted to be in Smyrna. They still want to be in Smyrna. They are still there in Smyrna. And people just wanted to be there, and it just seemed like a very beautiful place. But the hidden secret is there was a hate for Christians in Smyrna. There was more than meets the eye. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about the city that was mentioned right here in verse 8. In verse 8, it says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, think of angel. It wasn't an angel receiving this message because an angel doesn't need to know the will of God because angels already know the will of God. Unless, of course, they're fallen angels, and then we know that, that this is, well, I guess they would even know the will of God. They just betray it. So this, is, this word angel can be translated into the word messenger. That's important. Or church leader. Think of it as church leader in the church in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is, is an interesting city because it was a prosperous city. And, and the word Smyrna is, sounds like the word myrrh a little bit. And if you are a student of the Bible, you've read that, you know that myrrh is what was offered to Jesus as a baby, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You heard that story. All right, thank you. I had to reach for it a little bit, but you came through for me. So it was myrrh. Myrrh means bitter. And myrrh was something that was used. This was one of the chief exports in the city in Smyrna. And myrrh would be something that was like a perfume that was used at the, the, in, during a burial service of someone. So this was a very prosperous city, and of which myrrh is one of the things that they had done. Now, before we go back through verse 8, you're gonna, I want you to kind of understand something here. This city had, had resurrected. 
this city had resurrected because the city had existed before the birth of Jesus and it was rocking and rolling and it was growing and everything was great until it wasn't great. And in 580 BC, that city was destroyed. As a matter of fact, the city was destroyed in 580 BC and by destroyed, I mean it was uninhabited for the next 300 or so years. So it was destroyed, wiped out, and then the city didn't exist. But then, uh, again, a, a few centuries later in about 290 BC, there was a vision to build the city back. So it became a planned city. So think of it as a planned city instead of just somebody moves into this little area and there's a settlement and we're like, I don't know, what do you think we need to do? I, I think we need to put a road here. I think we need to do this. The whole city was planned. Like if you've ever gone to Savannah into the old part of Savannah, it was a planned city. Oglethorpe planned everything about that, that, the old part of the city, of how it would be structured, how the houses, how all the grid lines, how their beautiful parks within the old part of the city of Savannah because it was a planned city. Smyrna was a planned city also. So this city was, was a place that had resurrected. Notice now in verse 8 what Jesus says again. He says, These are the words of him who was the first and the last who died and came to life again. These wouldn't have just been passing words like they would be passing words in our culture. To the church in Smyrna, they would know that there was so much pride and prosperity in this city. This city was proud of the fact that they had resurrected, that it was a city that was destroyed, that it was basically uninhabited for 300 years, and then they just planned to build this beautiful city, and it was working for them. So when Jesus would say that in verse 8, he's saying, you know, I'm the first and the last. And he would mention the his own resurrection, and it would be like, what? What did he just say? And not only would the people in Smyrna know this, all the rest of the cities would know this too. Like, oh, wow, Jesus got this one nailed. He knows exactly who he's talking to. Another little fun fact, it becomes helpful in understanding what's going on in, this, in the context in this culture. In about the year 23 BC, the people of Smyrna realized that that. The Roman Empire was gaining ground, and as they're gaining ground, they, they feared that the Roman Empire was then going to dominate their land. So to gain favor with the Romans, they decided that they were just going to put in a uh, basically a place of worship. So they would just put it in the place of worship for some pagan Roman worship. That way, when the Roman Empire came to town, it's like, oh, they're already one of us. But this so shaped their culture I think even more so than what the people even realized. Because as they were going through and as they now have this, they've just implemented this worship, this emperor worship of the, of the Roman emperor of the time. Now what's happening is everything about that city is tied, every bit of success that they think is, is success and wealth is tied to the emperor worship. So everybody, ha if, if you're part of the inner circle, or if you're a part of the outer circle, if you're a part of the outer, outer circle within society, you were expected to worship the Roman emperor. And if you didn't, like the Christians didn't, then you were viewed as a cast out. And they actually viewed you as an atheist because for them, they believed they were multiple gods. And so they believed there were multiple gods. And when Christians would go through and say, we don't believe in all those gods, they just kind of cast them out and said, they're atheists. They just don't believe in gods. However, Christians do believe in God, in, a, in the Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit, the three in one. But they were, they were referenced as being atheist. This, this formed like a religious patriotism. Uncommon, but yet there's still some threads of religious patriotism that still exist in our country today. And what this meant was the individuals could aspire to economic prosperity and greater social standing only if they participated in this Roman cult. And like I just mentioned, it, then it posed a problem for the Christians because the Christians couldn't bow down and the, the Christians would not bow down and say that Caesar is king because they knew that Jesus is king. So this gives an understanding as to what else is going on. So they refused to participate in what was happening. And as they were refusing to participate, look in verse 9. And we're going to start to see the, the commendation given. Verse 9, we're going to see what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. First thing, when Jesus commends them, he doesn't start with them, he starts with himself. In verse 8, we see that Jesus reminds them who he is. This is the core message. Jesus reminds them who he is. That's part of the commendation that's given. Notice what it says. Jesus, he says, these are the words of him who is the first and last who died and came to life again. Who is Jesus referring to? Himself. So the way that he's commending them is, he says, I know your afflictions, but I want you to know, and I want you to be reminded who I am. Think of this in this way. So again, the, the, first, the, the first takeaway under this is Jesus reminds them of who he is. Think of this as you work at a business, and you're on the shop floor of the business, and the CEO, he or she is on the top floor, separated from you in some corner office, and usually you don't have a whole lot of interaction with the CEO, but what you've heard is and what you know is that the business is struggling. So they're struggling financially, there's rumors of layoffs, there's rumors of this, there's rumors of that. So think of it in this way. When Jesus reminds them of who he is, it's like the CEO coming down out of the corner office, coming down to the shop floor, and remind, everybody knows who, he, who the CEO is, by the way. The CEO coming up next to each person who's on the shop floor and saying, hey, you know what? We're in this together. It's you and it's me and it's all of us. We're in this together and we're going to make it through. And I've got a plan to, to help us get out of the slump. I've got, a, I've got a plan for you to prosper through this time. And just know that you're not alone. And Jesus reminds them that they are not alone by reminding them who he is. You see, interesting thing is, Jesus can fully, fully empathize with the church in Smyrna because he too was afflicted. He, he also lived in poverty and he also was slandered against and yet he was rich. This is the ministry of Jesus, isn't it? This is the life of Jesus, of, of what we see in, in highlighting the, the three years of public ministry that Jesus had, this, this kind of classifies his life. He was afflicted. 
in the Word of God. Hold your place there in Revelation, but if you would like to, if you could go to the left in your Bible into Isaiah 53, and we're going to see this, this affliction firsthand. That's what's prophesied about Jesus hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And yet, in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2, this is what Isaiah was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit, referring to Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like the root of a, like a, a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So the very destruction that the evil one thought that was going to be brought about Jesus, that the evil one thought that Jesus would be defeated because Jesus was going to be afflicted, because Jesus was, was smitten, because Jesus was neglected, because there was nothing about Jesus that, that made, made people think, oh, that's the Messiah at birth. There was nothing about Jesus. There was no, no natural beauty about Jesus. But yet what the evil one did not know is Jesus is the Messiah. He is the conquering one because he is Lord. And then ultimately through that, that he would be the savior of the world. So just at the time where the, where the enemy was just about to roar, thinking the enemy was winning, the enemy was actually losing, and God was using the enemy's hand to defeat himself. Wow. Jesus can empathize with everything that we go through, and he can empathize with everything that's going on in the church in Smyrna. It says in this passage, the original passage, Jesus says, I know your afflictions. And he knows their afflictions. He knows ours. He knows every struggle that you have. He knows the late nights. He knows the, the habit that you have, that, that you've had a hard time breaking. He knows the, the marriage that broke up. He knows of the marriage that you're in. He knows the kids that have gone wayward. He knows about the job loss. He knows about the whispering. He knows about the gossip. He knows about the slander. And he knows about the outright lies. Not only does he know the, that in some secondary way, he knows because he lived it himself. So Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your Poverty. You see, the second thing is this. Jesus reminds them of what he sees and that he cares. Isn't this so good to know? That he isn't just some God who sits off in heaven just like wondering when his minions are going to get it right. That God knows and that God cares and that God loves us. There's a, someone said this, and we've been talking about revival for months now, and someone said this, revival is falling in love with Falling in love with God all over again. That's what revival is. It's falling in love with God all over again. And to think that, that God cares for you and that he loves you and that he's pursuing your heart. That he wants to give you a new heart and he wants you to give you the Holy Spirit of God. 
so you can have the strength of God, the strength of God, so that you can have a way out of your temptation, so, so you won't be defeated in battle, so that you'll be a victor in battle. And by the way, we all battle. So Jesus reminds them and us of what he sees and that he cares. Notice the first thing he says, I know your affliction. I, I know it. And your poverty. By the way, the word poverty there, just so we're clear, it means abject poverty. It means poor, poor, poor. It doesn't mean just, oh man, you know, I'm, I'm, waiting, for, I'm waiting for the government check to come through. I'm like, I'm in between jobs. I'm waiting for my unemployment to come in. There was no unemployment. There was no social system to bail someone out. There was none of that. So when Jesus was saying this about the church in Smyrna, I want you to also know what was going on. Because of the Roman emperor worship and because Christians wouldn't bow down to the Roman emperor, then the city turned against Christian businesses. And then Christian businesses had no clients. And then Christians who then went off to go to work, then they found themselves without a job because the whole city had turned against the Christians. So when Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, he says, I know your abject poverty. I know the suffering that, that you're enduring right now because you don't have any money and because it looks so bleak because there's no way for you to have more money. This is, this is why it's important for us to, to really do a deep dive into these churches because if we wouldn't have known of emperor worship that was happening in this city, we wouldn't know. It's like, oh, and you're poor. Why are they poor? They're poor because the whole culture turned against them. I believe that we have a hard time really seeing what this is like because people use churches to promote their own business. I don't support this, by the way, just in case you thought that I thought that was a good idea. I don't think it's a good idea. That's not the point of the church. And sadly, what I've seen is in our culture, this is the reason why it's so hard for us to understand their culture. What I've seen so many times is, is people come through these doors over, over, over my tenure, tenure here. I've seen people come through these doors. They come in for, you know, there's somebody in the community or they have a new business or some platform they're trying to, to put out. And they come in, they make two visits, and they work the room like a politician, and they leave because they made all the business contacts they wanted and needed, and then they've left. And they're off to the next church to do the same thing. That's pitiful. I think one of the reasons why it's hard for us to even understand even the context of what's going on in the church in Smyrna is because it's so different than ours. It's so different because either people use the church to promote their own business, which is not the point of the church at all, or another aspect, and this is common in the South, and this is a good thing, is because Christian businesses in our culture are still viewed as honest and honorable. So if you have a Christian business here, even if somebody isn't a follower of Jesus and it's a Christian business, it's still viewed as honest and honorable. Not so in the church in Smyrna. So when Jesus says, I know of your afflictions and I know of your poverty, Jesus says, I know, I know a lot about you and I see you and I appreciate you and you're not alone. We have all sorts of reminders all throughout the Bible really that, that we're going to suffer 
and also that sometimes the suffering, it comes through the lens of somebody being poor, financially poor. James 2, 5 says this, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. We have another reminder of this in 2 Corinthians 6. You can flip there if you would like to. Right in the New Testament, we have another example of this. In the Apostle Paul, he highlights the condition that that he's doing ministry in. In 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10 says this, We put no no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry would not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, and in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love. Verse 7, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. I wonder what the church would look like If everybody knew this was the pathway of discipleship, that maybe not for us, exactly every one of these things, but potentially for us. I wonder, I wonder how many people would be on the path of discipleship if they were to say, if if we were just to take Paul's words, inspired by God to write those, and just as he's talking about his, his discipleship. In great endurance, troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, impurity, understanding, patience, and kindness. Talking about fighting fighting spiritual battles with weapons in his right hand and left hand. Through glory and dishonor, meaning people dishonoring them, bad report and good report, people giving mixed reviews, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying, yet we live on, beaten, yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. There's also a mention in the original passage of slander, the slander that's happening to the Christians, and we're not really sure as to who it is the slandering or the condition. Obviously, it has something to do with the Jews because it, it says this. He says, I, Jesus said, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So there's some mixed reviews as to who is being mentioned here. But what, what most people tend to believe is that, they, that some of the Jews had actually sold out the Christians, that some of the Jews who were not the true and faithful Jews. True and faithful Jews are those who have also recognized Jesus Christ as a Messiah and Lord. So it was this other group of Jews who say they're the Jews, but they actually were slandering the Christians and they were betraying the Christians to the Romans to gain Roman favor. So now there's, there's all sorts of pressure that's happening within the Christian world 
in that day. I want to go back to this idea about being rich. It says, in the middle of verse 9, it says, Yet you are rich. Being rich in Christ. Meaning that there's more to this world than material wealth. There's more to this world than a 401k or the neighborhood you live in or how many square feet of, that your home uh, occupies or how much land that you possess or how much cattle or livestock you possess or, or what your retirement plan looks like. There's more to life than that. And we see little instances. I was really depressed this week when I ran across this quote. So I was depressed and I thought you would be too. So here we go. Steve Jobs said this at the end of his life. It's really sad, truthfully. He said this at the end of his life. He's on his deathbed. He said, I, I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my eyes, my, my life, rather, in others' eyes, my life is an epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, wealth is only a fact of life that I'm accustomed to. So he's coming to the end of his life and he realizes that he's been chasing things that don't really carry eternal value. And he's struggling with it. Now I think for us, none of us would consider ourselves as rich, but, and, and I, that, that's a talk for another day, but none of us would consider ourselves as rich. So although I do think in the world scheme of things, we are actually rich percentage-wise Christians even the, some of the poorest Christians are some of the wealthiest people in the world still today by percentage. But I, I want you to know this about money, and this isn't a money talk, but I want to give you this. You see, we can, sin by trusting, we can sin by trusting in money, and we can sin by dwelling on the money that we don't have. We can either sin by trusting in money and trying to gain all this wealth, and we can also, or we can also sin on the other side of it of looking at the money that we don't have. So we may not be chasing the money, but we can do this, because what it says next, besides this, pride can grow from having money and when those in poverty envy the money of others. It's a slippery slope either way. If you chase worldly wealth or you're envious of other people's worldly wealth, that's a very, very dangerous place to be. It's a slippery slope. As I say, you could go either way. But yet we're rich in grace. We're rich in mercy. I love Eugene Peterson's commentary on, on Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. Just listen to this. Let this just refresh you. He says this, It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat, he says. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and he made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and he set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Third takeaway from the main passage is this. Jesus reminds them of what to do. Jesus reminds them of what to do. He talks about 
And he mentions who he is. He reminds him who he is. He also reminds him that, that he sees them and he cares about them. And now he reminds them of what to do. Back to our passage. Jesus said, I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Beginning of verse 10, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. So Jesus reminds him of what to do. The first thing he says, do not be afraid. We'll say it this way, be fearless. As to your walk with Jesus, be fearless. Be fearless. The reason why they can be fearless and operate faithfully, the reason why is because Jesus already reminded them of who he is and his presence in their life. That's, that's the reason why we can. This is the reason why we also, we talk about abiding with Jesus, why we talk about that, that taken from John 15. This is the reason why we talk about the elements of spiritual formation, the things that we do, the, practice, the practices that we have to help us connect with Jesus and to live in the Spirit of God. This is the reason why, is so we can actually have this kind of life, so we can live a life that is fearless so that we can know we have the presence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. And because of that, that gives us the fuel and fire to live out our lives for Him. That's how we can do this. So he says, be fearless. But notice what he says next. It's not like some cute and cuddly version of Christianity. Notice what he says. Do not be afraid of what you're about to What's the next word? Suffer. So he lets them know ahead of time, you're about to suffer this. And he says, I tell you, the devil put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. The idea of suffering for 10 days, people tend to think it means a bunch of different things. I'm not going to go down that road, and I, I'm, we're just going to take God's word at face value and say it was 10 days, but we can just say it was going to be an immense and painful 10 days. Next reminder and, that Jesus gives to the church, after he says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer, I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. The second takeaway he gives them is be faithful. So the first thing he says is be fearless, and now he says be faithful. Oh, Christian, this is a message we need to live out today. We need to be the people who are faithful to God's word and who aren't, who aren't responding with fear about everything that's going on in our world. We don't have the same opposition that the church in Smyrna had, but we have our own opposition. We have opposition all throughout our culture in the political landscape and the, the racial landscape and the economical landscape. We have all sorts of, of issues 
in, in our day that, that could just lend to being fearful and not being faithful. We need to be people who are fearless in the name of Christ and also people who are faithful to the mission and to the gospel of Christ. This, this message is our message. Give a little bit more clarity about being faithful. Being, for a man to become a Christian anywhere was to become an outlaw. In their day in Smyrna, for a, per, for a person in that area of the world to become a Christian, it was, it was to become an outlaw. So in Smyrna, above all places, for a man to enter a Christian church was literally to take his life into his own hands. And yet William Barclay so beautifully says, in Smyrna, the church was a place of heroes. There's a reference in verse 10 to the crown of life. And this crown, the word crown can be interpreted in different ways. But this Greek word, stephanos, it means like the crown after a victory. Which is probably the reason why Barclay also said, that the, that the Christians in the church in Smyrna were the real heroes. They were the, they were the victors. They were winning. They were winning. This lends into the church promise because this is the promise that they would receive the crown of life and that they would overcome and they would not be hurt at all by the second death. This goes into the promise but this promise as, as heroes. There's somebody from the first century and second century who was a prominent, play, prominent person in that city. And the gentleman's name is Polycarp. He was a bishop in Smyrna. Interestingly enough, the apostle John who wrote Revelation was most likely just a teenager whenever he met Jesus, and then walked through Jesus' ministry. And now John is old, like really old. And somewhere in the midst of John's old age, he met another teenager by the name of Polycarp. And, he, and just as Jesus discipled John, John discipled Polycarp. Polycarp also had disciples, because he was the bishop in Smyrna. And because he had other disciples under him and he was very well respected and people knew him, that put a target on his back too. After the persecution that happened under the Roman emperor Nero, the whole area throughout there was, fa was facing a lot of persecution. And it would fall upon Polycarp as well. As the story goes, Polycarp had a, a dream. I believe it was a dream. And he, in this dream, he had this vision that he was going to be burned at the stake. And I don't know if that, if that is just part of the legend or if that's factual, but it's captured in history either way. So because of the threat of persecution throughout the area, people, and Polycarp was old at this point. He's elderly. They told Polycarp, 
They said, it'd probably be best for you just to get outside of the city and to go out to the farm. And so he was, he was going to be secluded and retreat off to a farm. And they started looking for Polycarp because Polycarp, again, had disciples. And people listened to them, and Polycarp wouldn't bow down to the Roman emperor. So all through this, this journey, now they're looking for Polycarp, and now they actually go to the farm, and they find Polycarp. And they, they came up to Polycarp, and all they wanted him to do was just deny Jesus and say that Caesar was Lord. But he couldn't do it. As a matter of fact, he, he said this. If I can find this quote in my notes, he said this. He says, for 86 years, I've served Jesus. How dare I now revile my king? So they took him. They brought him into the city, into an amphitheater that was in the middle of what they called the blood games, and they would martyr Christians in an amphitheater. The crowd was already primed. A couple people had already gone through the process. Some of those had been devoured by lions, and some of those had not. Some of those had bowed down, and they said that Caesar was Lord, and they denied Jesus, and they, they walked away alive. They gave Polycarp one more opportunity to, to deny Jesus, and he wouldn't deny Jesus. So they kick him out of the out of the whatever the, the vehicle, however it was, they got him there. So they kick him out and they send him off into the amphitheater. Just a frail old man. They gave him one more opportunity to deny Jesus and he still wouldn't do it. So they said, okay. So they tied him to a stake and they set him on fire. What they didn't expect was this. What they didn't expect was a wind came down over him and kept him separated from the flames so that eventually the fire didn't kill him. So the very vision that he had was about being burned at the stake and that comes to fruition. But knowing what's going on and knowing that, that the mob was against him, one of the men took a spear and they shoved it into his heart, and he died. A victor's death. So this message was Jesus had discipled John. John had discipled Polycarp. Now Polycarp was discipling other people. Up until death, he's standing in the amphitheater, would not, would not deny Jesus, would not say that Caesar is Lord. And he dies a hero's death, receiving his own crown. I just know that this message that was written probably 50 years before Polycarp died, that this message that we read today impacted Polycarp's faith. That this message about Polycarp and about him not being afraid up until the point of suffering and him being faithful, I just know that this message spoke to him. My hope is that it's also spoke to you. I don't know where this lands with you today. I don't, I don't know what 
is going on in your life, but I, I, I rest in the fact that God does know. So I just want to spend a moment or two, and I want to pray for you. And I want to pray specifically for you that you would be faithful and that you would not be fearful. And then also, I just want to pray for the other people around the world who are suffering from physical violence just because of the name of Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Father, we come to you today. And Father, we are so thankful that we have heroes like Polycarp. who stood for you in the face of great adversity, who did not shrink back, but he was fearless up until death. And he was faithful even to the point of death. Lord God, I, I pray that my brothers and sisters who are listening right now, God, that they will not take the enemy's bait. That they would be people who are fearless in their faith. And that they are faithful in our day. That we would be men and women and young men and women rooted in the word of God, connected to the Holy Spirit, living as we're loved by you, Jesus. And Lord, just as we read earlier from Isaiah 53, God, you were humiliated for sinners, sinners just like us. So God, just as that, that quote about revival, revival is falling in love with Jesus all over again. God, we can love you because you first loved us, even to the point of your own death on the cross. We praise you, Jesus. You're worthy of our praise. Come into our hearts, revive us. Help us, humble us, move in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.